You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one beacon of independent conservative thought here at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. And this is Daniel Horowitz back in the saddle here on Wednesday, November 1st here at the conservative conscience. And yes, it is a new month. It is a very big month. This is a month where the beginning of the month will certainly start out very differently than it will end. Although, will things really change that much irrespective of the outcome of the election? That's something we're going to get to more next week after things are, are clear You know what direction we're headed. I still think it's more likely Republicans will lose the House, but we'll discuss it then. Today we're going to discuss – the fundamentals of the fundamentals of the foundation of the foundation of our country, of our civilization, of who we are, where we're headed. It all gets back to sovereignty. Today is a very special milestone here at the Conservative Conscience. This is, with God's help, our 300th episode. Some of you I know have been with us from the very beginning in 2016 when you know we just – Kind of did this irregularly, maybe uh, once a week, whenever I had time, and then it became regularly twice a week, and now more like three or four times a week, whenever I could just get a chance to break away. Um, my wife always laughs at me when she catches me. She just did this last night. Were you just talking to yourself, Daniel? You know, because I'm always thinking and plotting and strategizing, thinking of issues, thinking of legal arguments, and. Uh, you know, so this is the one way I could actually talk to myself, but do so in a way that doesn't make me look like a fool. But I'm really not talking to myself. I'm honored to talk to this growing audience of, of patriots, well-informed, well-educated, um, clear thinkers. And you guys really keep me on my toes, ask such good questions, um, give me such great feedback. And it's the one thing I'm still thankful for. That we live in America, that we still do have the freedom of speech, where I could be often the only person that is willing to speak the truth on a given issue, being truly an independent constitutional conservative, not related to any tribe or party, where we break down in long form each issue, we come back to it, we follow up, we show examples you know, virtue signaling and race pandering from some of the thumbsuckers on the right or just straight up just Trump obsessiveness in both directions, hate him or love him from other colleagues is, is a lot easier to do than actually do your homework, do the research, and give it over. And certainly nowhere is this more evident than this week with this whole debate over anchor baby jurisprudence and stolen sovereignty of – Illegals just coming here and stealing our birthright. But it's more than that. I'm going to show you how we are no longer a sovereign nation. This show started around the time my book, Stolen Sovereignty, came out. 
And the the title of the book really, really embedded in that title is the profundity of everything that is wrong with our government at this point that is really not changing that much irrespective of the elections, although on the immigration part of it, Trump is at least speaking to it, although we're not really accomplishing that much change, although some things we'll see in, in, in the coming weeks with the, with the caravan, at least that part of the border problem. And the reason why I say almost everything is included in that is because Stolen Sovereignty, I, I gave the name of the book Stolen Sovereignty because it's a double entendre for what I discussed in the book which is the stealing of our sovereignty through social transformation without representation, through illegal immigration or out-of-control legal immigration that really is not what we voted for. I have an article on that today coming out. We were promised the opposite. That's one issue. Then the second issue is the stolen sovereignty of an ind- on the individual level where the unelected weakest branch of government has become the strongest and the sole and final expositor of the Constitution. And given that nowadays the political class thinks everything they want to do is in the Constitution, so therefore they have the sole and final say over every political issue, and we have nothing to say about it. And then in my book, and you see that certainly this week, what we're going to discuss today with illegal immigration at large and birthright citizenship for illegals in particular – The two merging together, the stolen sovereignty of the individual that we can no longer self-govern and determine our own politics, and the nationwide border stolen sovereignty, quite literally, a foreign national is forcing their way in here without our consent, forcing their way of life on us, forcing themselves to become citizens against our will, and then using the unelected branch of government to do so. So you might want to call it the stolen sovereignty of stolen sovereignty. I'm going to route this broad theme through the specific nature of this birthright citizenship debate, which is not a debate. There is only one side to this. There's not a shred of legitimacy to what 90% of the fake conservative TV scholars are saying that know nothing about they, – they might know about areas of law that I don't know about, and I'm sure they do. But what they don't know about is sovereignty, again, both from the immigration angle, from the judicial supremacy angle, the mixture of the two. And if they understood that and routed it from our founding, they would understand the 14th Amendment, what it was doing what was said at the time, even what the jerk Justice Horace Gray did in the Wong Kim Ark decision in 1898 and where we are today. Let me, let me just first say on that thing with the TV scholars, again, I'm thankful in America that I get to be that only voice sometimes, one of the only voices to actually unabashedly speak the truth without any fear even though I am literally a nobody. I'm just like you. I'm no different than any of you in the audience. Um, As some of you know, or some of you still are confused about the fact, because 
uh, people mix me up with the uh, famous defense attorney in California whose name is Daniel Horowitz. A lot of people Google and they see his picture. Um, he obviously has more gray hair and uh, or less hair than I do because he's a lot older. But I am not a trained lawyer. I never went to law school. It's funny, a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago actually, I was speaking to a retired federal appeals court judge who was once upon a time on a very short list to be a Supreme Court justice. And, you know, I was talking about all my concerns. And somehow it came up in the middle that, you know, I never went to law school. Maybe I was just saying, look, dude, I need your help. I need. I need more firepower. I can't do this alone. I, heck, I never even went to law school. And he's like, what? You got to be kidding me. He, he literally couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. But then he said, you know what? I guess, Daniel, that's why you could think clearly where so few others can on these issues. Because even the conservatives, they go to law school and then their brain gets contaminated with this Amelia Bedelia vacuous decompartmentalized thinking without thinking broadly of the common sense, speaking to the culture, the history. And, and, and that's part of the problem. It's like you know, the biggest problem that I see, certainly it's evident with the legal community, the legal conservative movement, but really the political conservative movement as well is that there's so much diffidence. There's so much uncertainty, lack of confidence in their own views. The left is never unconfident. They, they, they will look at – for example, a Supreme Court decision that they don't like, Citizens United and Heller, they will say there's not a degree of – a shred of legitimacy to that, and we will ignore that. Whereas our side, on every issue, 90 percent of it, we're always like, yeah, really, the 14th Amendment, they're right, but maybe not on this point. But yeah, they kind of have a point. Yeah, Plyler v. Doe, illegals have a right to K-12 education. Yeah, you know, that's kind of settled and – and this it's always like that. And the uniqueness about this show is not only do we do our homework, but we also speak to the morality of an issue, the clarity of an issue, the common sense of an issue, the tradition of an issue, the foundational first principles of our country, the way the left speaks to the morality of their immorality, in my view. And that's what's missing with these just dry some suckers, and they learn this garbage in, in the self-doubt in law school because part of the problem is, again, they only see one side. They go to law school, and they're just so certain of themselves because the law schools teach them this is how it is. Marbury versus Madison means judicial supremacy. And you know, they know it's kind of weird, but they don't hear anyone being so certain on the other side of it, and that's how they all get sucked into this garbage. I was teaching my son, my younger son, recently just the, the story of Abraham and how he came to recognize God and just the whole dynamic of one man versus the whole world that every single person in the world served idols and you know, how one man could be so sure they, they are wrong and recognize the truth and speak out against it. And my son was just so, so shocked at such a concept and I said, look, you know, some of us kind of do this every day where you have the group think on something that is so, so wrong. The notion that foreign nationals can break into our country, unilaterally assert jurisdiction. There's nothing we can do prospectively. 
and the determination of that issue is all in the hands of the unelected branch of government. We, we all believe in the Constitution as written, but there's something even more foundational than the Constitution, and that is the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence is an expression of the social contract built upon the social compact that communities, associations get together and for their mutual benefit, they need to associate and make a governing body for the mutual welfare of you know everything starts with the individual. That's the beginning. The individual creates the association, but not everything can be done by an individual, right? Mainly external protection from external harm, sovereignty, borders, but other things as well, the general welfare, you need a governing body. So it is built upon consent, allegiance, and protection. Consent, allegiance, and protection. That the members... You, you have to have a starting point that you're all kind of there. You all start it. You settle there. And at some given point, all of you who are, have the right to be there consensually associate, form that social compact, and have a social contract to govern it, to, to lay down the parameters. It's all through consent. You have allegiance to that compact which is two both ways. It's you have allegiance meaning as long as I'm part of it, but also, you know, we don't believe in despotism and I could always disassociate and leave if I want to. Right? I'm not a subject and I can always leave if I want. As long as I'm with it, I get the protection of it or I could decide to trade in my protection by relinquishing my allegiance because I have the consent to join and I have the consent to leave it. But then, well, how do you add members to that club? So this starts off with uh, Governor Morris, the very colorful character, founding father from Pennsylvania, one of the original Pennsylvania delegates at the Constitutional Convention. He is, by the way, believed to be the primary author of the Constitution, not the brains behind it, but the actual prose of the Constitution, at least according to Madison. And he said at the Constitutional Convention, which is when we're literally drawing up the contract, right? They made the compact, but the original contract, which was the um, Articles of Confederation weren't working out, and they were trying to draw a new or at least originally modify it and then eventually agree to, to completely gut and change it for a new constitution, one of the most foundational things he said at the time was that every society from a great nation down to a club had the right of declaring the conditions on which new members should be admitted. There can be no room for complaint. I want you to think about that statement. Very, very profound. Very, very foundational. You know, that is that is pretty much everything. That is everything. Certainly, 
that in alone shuts down the birthright garbage, the anchor baby jurisprudence and everything else. But where did he get that from? He got that from a beautiful document, really our most sacred document in my view, or I, I don't think that, well, you know, I don't want to compete with the Constitution, but more foundational, the most foundational document. What 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 does the um what does the what does the declaration say? What does it say? So it expresses these values when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A de- a <clears throat> Decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So they were laying down this this foundation, laying down the social contract. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are the three rights. But there is a fourth right that is the foundation for my book and the foundation for everything we've talked about until now on this show and the foundation of today's show as well. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Okay? Governance by the consent of the governed. Included in that is territorial sovereignty and popular sovereignty. Obviously that we control our own territory. Nobody could force their way upon us. So the national border, but also the political jurisdiction, the popular sovereignty that we get to determine our self-destiny. We get to determine our governance, we get to control that. That is what a sovereign nation is. You have sovereign borders, but also you're a sovereign individual. Now, obviously, how do you do that? That's what the founders struggled with and groped around in the dark and experimented a little bit until they you know, debated and came out. It took, um, you know, obviously, 13 years to get the government up and running from the time that declaration was declared. How exactly, with three branches, bicameralism, popular vote filtered through different things, filtered through representation. But they believed in republicanism that ultimately the power had to flow from the people. Through their elected representatives, they determine the destiny of their society. Now, let's mix the two together. Again, immigration, sovereignty, jurisdictional, territorial sovereignty – with popular sovereignty, the right to self-govern, and mix it together. Certainly, 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 the ultimate decision of who to admit to your society to become a voting member, a citizen, must be determined by those people alone, and that decision must flow directly in a legitimate way, republicanism being one of them, through elected representatives – through the laws you pass and that you could always amend and change and repeal and write new ones through that same body, through the people. Which is why I always say that James Madison 
in one of his latest writings before he died, and in 1835, he wrote an essay on sovereignty. You could Google it, Madison Essay on Sovereignty and Property Rights, and that's why he uses naturalization as the issue du jour. That is the ultimate paradigm of republicanism. He uses that as the example of how Republican wor- republicanism works. He explains it doesn't mean you obtain unanimous consent from every last person. It's not feasible. It means the majority of the representatives or representing the people determine that issue. That is the ultimate of the ultimate, the sovereign of the sovereign, the governance, self-governance by self-governance. That is the most foundational principle of our government. Yet, as we know, that is all being violated now. Certainly on immigration, that it's being stolen by us. It's being stolen primarily by the unelected branch of government. And then also independently, the unelected branch of government is deciding everything. I don't know if we're going to have time to get into this today, but also what more fundamental than election law, self-governance? The Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, leaves that up to the states. Congress has an avenue to get involved in extraordinary circumstances in the view of Hamilton. I mean, because the Constitution does say Congress could get involved, but, you know, Hamilton meant extraordinary circumstances. But of course, not unelected federal judges. Yet now, you see in Ohio, you see in Georgia, all over, judges are literally putting injunctions on state laws demanding that they count thousands of illegitimate battles, uh, ballots pursuant to their states to tip the election to the Democrats. It's happening all the time. We are no longer a self-governing nation. So we don't have sovereignty of the individual. We don't have sovereignty of the state. And we don't have sovereignty of the entire federal union. Each one has been flipped on its head. And again, all determined by the most undemocratic, unrepublican, unelected branch of government, which has a very important role to serve in adjudicating individual disputes under the law, but not setting national political policy and certainly the most important one of who lets in society. This last 10 minutes, rinse, repeat, listen to it over and over again. You're going to hear it in very few places. Um, and this is, this is it. With that background, now you can easily understand why one Kim Ark and birthright citizenship is a disgrace and was there's no way anyone in the country, certainly at our founding time, but also in 1867, could have understood it that way. Now, before I start off with this, I want to make very clear, just in case, because I don't know if I'm going to have time to come back to this again at the end of the show. But we've, we have two articles where we covered this in depth, and I covered it. This is really redundant from – a Tuesday show, right? That's episode 299. If you want to rehear that, that I made very clear, even if you agree to birthright citizenship and the Wong Kim Ark decision in 1898, that the 14th Amendment was indeed creating a very hard mandatory floor of all and any legal immigrants, their children automatically are citizens no matter what, and Congress can't regulate that in any way. Even if you believe in that, there is no way that could apply to those who come here without consent because at least legal immigrants initially are admitted with consent. Um, and 
that includes Justice Horace Gray himself, who wrote Wong Kim Ark. It is we don't have to guess. It is a hundred percent clear. So there's not even a shred of legitimacy to that opinion. I don't care who you hear it from. I know there's some very respected conservative libertarian law people, most of them libertarian actually, because there are very few conservative legal figures. Um, saying contrary to that, they are 100% wrong. And as certain as Abraham was in the existence of one God in heaven, I am certain of this fact. There is no way you could say someone could break into the country without any recourse, without us have, have having had any initial way of blocking that, at least at the front end, so at least you can't come in, you know, legal immigrant – you could block that. Once they're here, they're saying then it's mandatory automatic once they have kids or citizens, fine, but you cannot apply it to legals. But for now, I want to have more of an academic discussion, a historical discussion on why even the floor for legal immigrants, not as a matter of policy extending it, is wrong. And, and we have extended it, and I want to extend it and do it automatic. But why to say it's in the Constitution and, and we don't have a choice but to do that? is rooted in a very corrupt, reprehensible policy, uh, mindset, and, and principle that is antithetical and foreign to our founding and the 14th Amendment itself and the history between and after. And why the Wong Kim Ark decision ranks up there with not, – not so much because of the policy outcome, although – the transmogrified policy outcome that they blow up to illegals is 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 devastating. It's the destruction of a civilization. But the rationale behind it was every bit as bad as Dred Scott, Obergefell, Plessy, all the worst cases are, are like that. And and what I find amazing is that the conservative legal scholars, again, You'll have one bad Supreme Court decision or lower court decision sometimes undermining our Constitution, our Declaration, the essence of self-governing society, three other precedents before that. But once it's there, not just the left, but our side will view that as inviolable. It's settled. There's nothing more to say. It's beyond the shadow of a doubt. Um, really? Like, what about Chief Justice Fuller's dissent? And all of his unanswered questions to Gray, which we're going to discuss some of them, and the two previous cases, and the entire record of the congressional debate. And I want to just say something about this. There's a bunch of schmucks that are going around saying, it's just the opposite. We're the textualist. Suck the thumb. A textualist. Originalist. I, I notice I almost never use those terms. It's just they're, they're stupid. They, they don't speak to anything. They're made up legalese textbook crap. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just unloading today. See, they talk about Scalia hating looking at the congressional record and looking into intent, and you got to look at the text. They take that to an extreme. It all depends on what the text says. And what the congressional debate says. It's not that it's never admissible. Scalia used it all the time. It's when it supports one of many, many things to paint a picture of what clearly the text is saying. 
Meaning they're the ones using 2018 diction for jurisdiction. Oh, it means you're inside of our country. Oh, you, you have to follow our laws. So it's pretty much everyone except for diplomats and, and, and the Indian tribes. Oh, it's everyone. No, because if you, textualism is understanding the actual text, comma, as it was understood at the time it was written. They're the ones doing the living and breathing constitution. They're accusing us of doing it. Um, they're the ones introducing the most foreign concepts that they never would have envisioned. Um, the entire understanding of jurisdiction, allegiance, that they always spoke about, points certainly, certainly a thousand percent ensures that illegals can't be part of that. And that includes even Justice Gray's stupid decision. But even Justice Gray was wrong, and it doesn't even include a mandatory on most legal immigrants. So I, I, I went a little long in the intro, and I didn't even get to the meat and potatoes. But basically, now, now you understand the background of what we were adopting. We were adopting self-governance, allegiance. Everything is allegiance. How did citizenship work? Citizenship worked, as I said. It was very murky. There were no ironclad laws. It was very, very murky, and that was noted by a lot of people. It was very murky. It wasn't defined. Um, but there was natural law based on the social contract and the social compact, which, as the preamble of the Declaration speaks to, is rooted in natural law nature's God, that – you, you start us – at some point, you have to have a starting point. A society starts. It's settled. And then you're a citizen. So it was – so the starting point is it's natural law, and it always was, and certainly with our country's founding, that it's – the blood, it's blood and allegiance is where it's passed down. So your kids are automatic citizens. Now, what about someone who comes here? Well, then we, we have naturalization. We determine who and under what circumstances we want to allow them to come and under what circumstances we want them to be citizens. Now, once they become citizens, so then if they have a kid thereafter, so then they're like anyone else, and that's the same natural law, their kid is a citizen. What about if we let them in, they're an immigrant, we didn't give them citizenship yet, and they have a kid? Well, that doesn't get passed on automatically because they're, you know, it's not, it's just not passed on. The parents are immigrants. Now, you say, well, they're born on our soil. That concept of just solely, that it goes by the soil, not by allegiance, and um, the parents, that notion, again, very, um, very foreign. That notion is English common law. That was rooted in the feudalism of English common law, that you're attached to the soil, that anyone who comes into the soil, unless they're a foreign diplomat, um, they even, – even those passing temporarily and they drop a kid, the land, the soil grabs them up. You are a subject of the king, right? You are a subject of, a, of the king, and there's nothing you can do about it. 
And it works two ways, against your will, just like the divine right of kings, just like God. You know, we say about God, against your will, you're born, against your will, you die. So a king was the same thing. Against your will, the land grabs you up if you're in their domain. And likewise, you can never expatriate. You can never renounce. You can never get, get away from that. That would be rebellion against the king. You're put to death. You know, if they catch you any anywhere else or if they're able, if you come back and you they say you committed a crime, you're subject to that. So that is what just solely was. In those days, you know, the English, they made anyone a citizen in English common law, 1600s, 1700s. That's what they were doing during that time where you are automatically a, a citizen. And again, this worked in two ways. Number one, even if you're an immigrant, even a temporary visitor almost coming in, and you have a kid, that kid is an American, is, 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 is British, English citizen. And likewise, the other way around, um, you know, if you move away, then you are not a citizen. Uh, I'm sorry, if you move away, I'm mixing that up with the next thing I'm going to say. If you move away, then uh, you, you can never renounce that. You can never just like, look, I'm done with you. I am leaving the, the civilization, the compact, the association. I'm leaving it. I'm done. You can never say that. Likewise, if it's not passed in, down through the consensual allegiance of the parent that consensually joined it or was born into it and get, wants to voluntarily give that over to his kids, unless he wants to renounce it on his behalf or move away himself, but his kids get it, it's the opposite. So you have the opposite of birthright. You know, an, an immigrant coming here and having a kid is a U.S. citizen moving overseas away and having a kid. Under English common law, that kid, well, you're not on the soil. You're not under the king's protection. You are not a citizen. That, not so much the outcome of it, but the philosophy behind it was so antithetical, as I just said at the introduction of the show, to the consent of allegiance. Right? That, that, is, that is the opposite view, the, the notion that you're attached to the state by the soil and not through consent and allegiance. And again, the reason why I keep saying the word allegiance is because we're going to see that was the word used throughout the debate, the court cases on the 14th Amendment. That was the entire word being used to explain subject to the jurisdiction of. But our founding was rooted in the citizenship by consent passed on from the parents. And by the way, this is why I went to town, and, and, and this was, you know, Trump was really bad on this too. It was disgusting that he did this when people were questioning Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is the, his situation is the opposite of birthright citizenship. It's he had American, well, at least his mother, you know, it goes, you know, all you need is one parent. His, his mother, was an American, you know, regular, you know, natural born American. So they moved to work in the oil fields in Alberta, and he was born in Canada, but he was a natural born American. That was as deeply rooted as 1790, our first naturalization acts from the beginning of our country, and really, really before that as well. Um, that was natural law. We always had allegiance because America was built 
upon that. So you could pass that over once you're a citizen even off the soil because it's not a soil. You're an American. Now, you can't go down from there another generation. If that kid never lived in America, obviously he can't pass down to a grandkid. But that was always done that way. That was always done that way. What about the other way around? What about what happened prior to the 14th Amendment when you had the other way around? You had immigrants come, and before they got naturalized, they had kids born. Were they natural-born Americans, or were they not? Were they or were they not? And that's a very murky question based on the history. And the best way I have to explain that is that they were de facto pretty much automatic, but they were not by the force of law in the Constitution natural born. In, in other words, that because natural born is natural law, you can't supersede that. In other words, what basically happened was, as you all know, the federal government had the power over immigration, naturalization for sure, but allowed the states, because of the Civil War, pre-Civil War politics, to um, govern that, you know, for, for the first number of decades of our country. So it basically, what if you want to know what happened, basically immigrants were given it because, you know, not not because they had to, but they wanted to. It was all race oriented, unfortunately. That that's don't don't shoot the messenger. This is just our history. Um, if you were white, uh, you more or less, you know, you'd go before a judge in the state and you'd swear your allegiance. And if they felt you were good, they'd give it to you. If not, not. But you know, you were you were given citizenship. So you know, you you'd basically, if you had a kid, you'd just petition for it, and you know, they they'd give it to you. If you wore black, they obviously wouldn't wouldn't give it to you. Or if you're whatever coming from, you know, some other part of the world from from Asia or Africa, um, they they really wouldn't give it to you. It was only for for whites. But the point is, it wasn't in terms of mandatory that you're scooped up by the by the state. It was that you know just practically. I mean, it's a good idea, and we all want that. If if it's the type of immigrant, meaning basically, if it was an immigrant we wanted, we would do it, which was most people. If it was an immigrant we didn't want, we wouldn't do it. Meaning, the point is, just because something was done, there's a difference between saying you you have to do it that way, and that the society doesn't reserve the prerogative to bar, and they certainly did use that prerogative, unfortunately, for non-whites. Now. At the time, what people need to understand is that we were moving away from English common law. English common law – people are confused because sometimes we use it, sometimes we don't. Well, it's, it's, not, it's no enigma. It's very simple. English common law was the most enlightened system of law relative to any other country, and it was the law they were familiar with because that's their ancestry when they moved to America. But it was relative. It still was a lot more despotic than what they were trying to create in America. So in the notes of the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson says – he answers this question. He says, we adopted, quote, the freest elements of common law. The feudalism they hated, they rejected. They went away from it. They didn't want it. 
And that's why right away it was discussed during the Constitutional Convention and later on in 1819 and eventually, as we're going to discuss in 1867, they moved they, – they, they talked about expatriating. It sounds obvious. What do you mean? Of course I can move away and no longer be subject. Of course I can renounce. But that was a novel idea at the time. Americans created that. And that's what we, we established, that no, you could expatriate. Because if it's just solely, the soil got you. You can't expatriate. See, they think they're being very enlightened. We're so open. We're giving it to anyone. That's, that's a feudal system. That works in both ways. It's against the consent of the society to automatically force it on them. And I understand it's not – again, it's not nearly as bad as illegals as we're going to discuss because you do have the front-end check on the initial admission through immigration. You cannot let them in. But still, I mean as you all know, there's three stages. There's coming, then there's you're an immigrant, then you're naturalized. And you know, it's not automatic that anyone we bring in as an immigrant, we have to naturalize them. No, we reserve the right to and, – and that was the whole thing, to check on how they're doing. Do you want to become part of the association? Do you like America? And do we like you? And that's why you don't swear to abjure all allegiance to foreign states. This is going to be very important when you talk about jurisdiction, to abjure until the end of the process, the very end when you're about to naturalize, you take that oath. And that oath is as deeply rooted as as – is a uh, cherry pie and July 4th, our first 1790 Naturalization Act, to abjure a very strong term, all allegiance, meaning that connotes that as long as you're here, even as an LPR, what we would call now nowadays a legal permanent resident, green card holder, you intend to stay here indefinitely, you don't have full allegiance yet. You still have allegiance, and you're certainly still a citizen of your other country, especially in those days. And nowadays, too, heck, we have American citizens that are still citizens, certainly of foreign countries, certainly immigrants who are. And that in itself is a whole other problem that no one wants to discuss, the stolen sovereignty with that. But that was the point. It was so antithetical to our founding, this notion that it's just solely. No, it's, uh, it's mutual consent and allegiance. But you can't shove allegiance on us. It has to be consent. Now, most people who came – again, Im- immigration was very slow before the Civil War. I mean especially really before the 1830s, 1840s, and there were a few of them. They were almost all white. They wanted them. They wanted to fill up the country, so they, they pretty much automatically gave it to anyone who was born to immigrant families. But it wasn't because it had to be that way. It was a matter of policy, which we would want today as well. To give you an, a sense – of just how how strong and notorious it was known that we moved away from just solely that it's all based on consent and allegiance is th- this is a fascinating anecdote that will um, shed light on this. So people were moving to America, you know, again primarily from England. You had France and Germany as well early on, but primarily from England, and they were moving there, let's say 1790s, and all immigrants had – if they wanted to become a citizen, like I said, they had to swear an oath to abjure all loyalty and allegiance to their prior sovereign. It totally was 
a thumb in the eye of common law. And the English were ticked off. The foreign secretary of, of the crown at the time was um, William Greenville. So in a letter, he complained to Rufus King. At the time, Rufus King was our um, foreign minister, whatever. Um, so so he, Rufus King was one of the, one of the founders. And, and uh, the, this uh, British guy said, what the heck? Quote, no British subject can, by such a form of renunciation as that which is prescribed in the American law of naturalization, divest himself of his allegiance to his sovereign. Look at those words. Such a declaration of renunciation made by any of the king's subjects would, instead of operating as a protection to them, be considered an act highly criminal on their part. Meaning, you're, you're forcing them. There's no middle ground here. You better believe we're forcing them to renounce. And likewise, in England, they had to renounce. So you see, our system was antithetical, antithetical to the despotism of the feudal system. So that's that. Let's fast forward, fast forward to the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment... And this applies not just to the citizenship clause, but the bastardization, the adulteration of the due process clause, privileges and immunities, and equal protection. As James F. Wilson, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee at the time, the primary author of the 1866 Civil Rights Act, which was essentially the 14th Amendment, just not codified into the Constitution, he said – that we're establishing no new rights, no new principles. We're merely giving blacks, black Americans who lived here for centuries, the rights of all citizens. The profundity of it, they were not creating a new constitution like the left thinks the 14th Amendment undid everything. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. As Abraham Lincoln said, and as so many of the members said on the floor at the time, this was perfecting the vision of the Declaration of Independence that should have been implemented right away. It was mainly implemented in the Constitution, but with one unfortunate glaring flaw to blacks that were slaves. Where we weren't doing consent. We were forcing them, grabbing them, holding them, not giving them citizenship. And the time has come to make them on par with everyone else. But everyone else, meaning that you don't have – they're not going to be any different, greater – than even white immigrants at the time, which was working off of parental consent and allegiance passed through to citizens, not through just solely. You're born on the soil. It wasn't trying to do that. It wasn't trying to do that, which is why now you can understand why it doesn't just say you're born here, you're a citizen. It says, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Subject to the jurisdiction thereof. It issues a second qualifier. As I said before, to make the case that it doesn't include illegals, even if it didn't say a second qualifier, it says straight up, you're born here. We already proved if you're an illegal, you're not here because here it has to have consent. And the court said that for 130 years with regard to every other aspect of immigration law. You are, in the most physical and literal sense, not here. So again, that is not even under discussion. And policy-wise, that's all we want to change. 
right? To be very clear, none of us are suggesting that, A, we're going to apply retroactively even to illegals, but that we're going to apply it to children of legal immigrants in any way. It's that one parent has to have a green card. That is it. One parent has to have a green card. Which means, by the way, one parent could theoretically even be illegal under our, our proposed change, which is not really a change. It's really what what everything was supposed to be before the lawless bureaucrats in the 60s and 70s. But the point being here is that's illegal immigration. But the second clause made it clear that not even all legal immigrants, subject to the jurisdiction thereof. What does that mean? Now, most of the members who spoke on the on the House and Senate floors during the debate, mainly the Senate floor, they were part of this 15-member Joint Committee on Reconstruction. That they, they heard a lot of witnesses. They took a lot of testimony, wrote reports on what do we need to do to perfect the system. And this had nothing to do with immigration. This was all about rectifying slavery, the problems with the states trying to deny black citizens. So that's why we had to create a constitutional right that you are subject to the jurisdiction thereof, meaning you are everything that a white citizen would be. That's what a black citizen is. But not that, oh, no, an immigrant. No, 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 a white citizen. Let me read to you from... um, from some of the floor floor statements. Let me just find it here on my uh, congressional record archives. Do, 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 do. So you had Sen- Senator Lyman Trumbull. Subject to the jurisdiction thereof means subject to the complete jurisdiction thereof. What do we mean by subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? Not owing allegiance to anybody else. That's what it means. As you remember, by definition, especially in those days, any immigrant, even a long-standing LPR, until they swore to abjure, owed allegiance. And in fact, even after they did, other countries would grab them. Now that's not our business. We we would regard them obviously as they're certainly you know they're ours, um, but it's complete allegiance. Senator Howard concurred with that, and he said, "I concur entirely." In the holding that jurisdiction, as here employed, that's his words, as we use here, ought to be construed so as to imply a full and complete jurisdiction on the part of the United States. A complete jurisdiction. Senator George Henry Henry Williams, from a Republican from um, Oregon territories. And he was a member of that joint committee. He said, I understand the words here. Subject to the jurisdiction of the United States to mean fully and completely subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. Hold that thought for a minute. Hold that thought. Seven years later, in 1873, that very same member of that very committee that drafted the 14th Amendment was now Attorney General George Henry Williams under President Grant. He wrote a memo, the first executive memo, explaining what the Citizenship Clause was. And he said, the word jurisdiction, and this is all harkens back to the debate. 
you know, they said the same thing, but the word jurisdiction must be considered to mean absolute and complete jurisdiction, such as the United States had over its citizens before the adoption of this amendment. Aliens among whom are persons born here and naturalized abroad, dwelling or being in this country, are subject to the jurisdiction of the United States only to a limited extent. Okay? And you can understand that. With the, that's why I spent so long giving this background. It wasn't random. Oh, I found some cute quote from the congressional debate, and I'm trying to slip it into the words of the Constitution. Huh, Daniel, you're not a textualist. You're a living and breathing guy. It was obvious and unanimous that we weren't uprooting what it means to be a citizen. We were merely extending to the blacks and rectifying the wrong that should have always been there from day one. But we weren't creating some greater floor to immigrants of all sorts, white, black, Asian, or anything else. And indeed, unfortunately, unfortunately, at that time, they badly wanted to keep out all Asians, and that was their intent. They didn't want them. There was no consent. So there's no way you could say at that time they ever could have said that if somehow we would have let in an Asian and they have a kid, that kid's a citizen against our will, even if he was consensually brought in. Again, unconsensually, we don't even have to talk about that. Anyone who posits that view is – I. They should never be taken seriously on a single issue. They don't deserve to be an American. But what I'm saying is even for all legal immigrants, that's what it was. Those were the words. It was obvious. There was a Democrat senator, um, Johnson. I'm forgetting his, his first name, Johnson. He um, – he said, I know no better way to give rise to citizenship than the fact of birth within the territory of the United States, born of parents who at the time were subject to the authority of the United States. Now, again, you read more of the congressional debate, even not related to the citizenship clause. They hearken back to the Declaration of Independence. They talked about consent. It was obvious our founders were building on that. They drew on Amir Vattel, the famous Swiss international law guy that was quoted by, Ju- by Justice Gray for all the sovereignty plenary paradoxion cases that you know the political branches could exclude anyone. And it was all based on consent. Consent, consent, consent. And... Um, as, as Chief Justice Fuller said in his dissent in One Kim Ark, explaining our rich history on, on this issue, he quoted Vattel, which, which, which he was the single biggest kind of inspiration for our founders and founding era on citizenship because he was the pioneer voice in Europe against what common law was doing. He said, quote, the natives or natural-born citizens are those born in the country of parents who are citizens. As a society cannot exist and perpetuate itself otherwise than by the children of the citizens, those children naturally flow – I'm sorry, naturally follow the condition of their fathers and succeed to all their rights. Again, in those days, everything inheritance is the father. Nowadays, you would apply it to either. Let me continue. Quote, the society is supposed to desire this in the consequence of what it owes to its own preservation – 
And it is presumed as a matter of course that each citizen on entering into society reserves to his children the right of becoming members of it. The country of the fathers is therefore that of the children, and these become true citizens merely by their tacit consent. We shall soon see whether on their coming to the years of discretion, they may renounce their right. Because that, again, you see renunciation was, was new then. But anyway, anyway, that was the point. Um, he said the true bond which connects the child with the body politic is not the matter of an inanimate piece of land, but the moral relations of his parentage. The place of birth produces no change in the rule that children follow the condition of their fathers, for it is not naturally the place of birth that gives right, but extraction. To the same effect, there was another modern writer. This is all from the descent in one Kimark. To what nation a person belongs is by the laws of all nations closely dependent on descent. It is almost a, a universal rule that the citizenship of the parents determines it, that of the father where children are lawful and where they are bastards. Sorry, that's just um, the term. That of their mother, in those cases where there's no father, right? Without regard to the without regard to the place of their birth, and that must necessarily be recognized as the correct canon, since national, nationality is in its essence dependent on descent. So again, from day one, they were rejecting um, common law. They were saying that from our traditions, it was clear that if you are an American that moves overseas, your kid is a citizen. And it was clear that you could expatriate, right? You could expatriate. You could You could renounce. And therefore, it was also clear that the other way around, if an immigrant comes here and has a kid, it's not the soil. In practicality, because it was a smart idea and they wanted all whites to really become citizens at the time, they gave it to them. But it wasn't a mandate. What degree of allegiance you have, at what point we determine, that is subject to statute. Because to take that away would say that Congress, that once you're here, there's no – fallback. And what I'm telling you is that that's despotic. Even to say that, even though we, we, we did have consent to let you in, but we didn't have consent to make you a citizen, so how could you force on us that your kid is a citizen? We want that to happen. We've mainly done that. Unfortunately, it was only for you know the races that were favored early on, but nowadays we would apply that obviously to everyone and anyone that we want to consensually bring in, you have a kid, we're fine with that. But just know that that is not a mandate and that is not in the the Constitution. It's not in the 14th Amendment. The assumption of the drafters was likely that Congress would follow up with naturalization laws defining the exact parameters of allegiance and jurisdiction, meaning is it you know, both parents have to be LPRs. What is an LPR? How many years did you have to be here? How close are you to taking the oath of citizenship? That is all fair game for them to regulate that, in my view, legally. Because to say otherwise, the outcome is not problematic in my view, but the um, philosophy behind that is very problematic. They moved against that. They didn't want it. Now, let's move on. Let's move on. The first author- authoritative we're, – we're, we're tracing the um, 
we're, we're tracing here the exact verbiage that they use to show you that we are the textualists. We are the originalists. They are the ones creating living and breathing foreign ideas, schmucky, phony, conservative, libertarian, thumb-sucking TV scholars. And I don't care how many law degrees and diplomas and awards and accolades they have. They know nothing if they don't know sovereignty and they don't know the social compact. Nothing else matters. In the Slaughterhouse Cases, 1872, the original interpretation of the 14th Amendment, this is the first court case. Justice Samuel Miller confirmed that its main, pur- quote, its main purpose was to establish the citizenship of the Negro. I'm just quoting the, the language. And that, quote, the phrase subject to its jurisdiction was intended to exclude from its operation children of ministers, councils, and citizens or subjects of foreign states born within the United States. And all these LPRs, they are all citizens of foreign states. It wasn't just, oh, anyone. No, it's, it's anyone born here. You have to follow our laws. Well, what do you mean? If you're a subject of a foreign state, but you're living here, you have to follow our laws. Right? But they were still excluded because it's not what subject to the jurisdiction thereof means. Twelve years later, in 1884, in Elk v. Wilkins... None other than Justice Horace Gray, who will later write Wong Kim Ark um, 14 years later, asserted that the phrase, quote, subject to the jurisdiction is, quote, not merely subject in some respect or degree to the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely subject to their political jurisdiction and owing them direct and immediate allegiance. No way establishing birthright citizenship, creating a mandatory floor outside of Congress to define those parameters, and adopting the feudal just solely. And you see, at the time, nobody would have thought otherwise in the 1870s, 1880s. That was the practice. Now, were all LPRs giving birth, their children automatically given citizenship? De facto, yes, if they were white or black in this case, the same way they were doing with they, they did be, even before the 14th amendment it was a matter of policy because it wasn't clearly defined so you know until congress clamped down on it you know we wanted them to be citizens but again and unfortunately you know we had chinese we originally let in through a treaty with the emperor but then you know there were some social problems the coolies the slave trade which is why by the way it's it's you know they made laws afterwards banning you know ec- this economic migration, bringing in people for like menial labor because it created social problems. You only brought in the men and, you know, we want people to be part of citizens. And that's why, like, I don't believe in all these, you know, just slave labor programs that they want to have at the meatpacking plants. This is exactly – now, of course, you know, obviously today's standards, we would call it very racist, very discriminatory. They didn't like them. They called them obnoxious people, really nasty things. Um, but I'm just saying there were, there were a lot of social problems. So then they started excluding them and, and then downright deporting them. And the courts were saying that's totally fine. That sovereignty, including Justice Gray in the famous 1992, 19, uh, 1892 Nishimura case, which became the foundation of the plenary power doctrine, the very drafter of Wong Kim Ark. So it was obvious that if we didn't want them and Congress made it clear they don't have their allegiance, we don't have the consent, their allegiance is to China, we're not letting them in, that certainly you can't force your citizens upon us, your babies, even though originally we let in the parents after regretting it as a society, we let them in consensually. 
No one would have thought otherwise. That's what was happening. And that's why Justice Gray said that because he read the congressional debate. He read the statements of the attorney general. They under, everyone understood that. As the Slaughterhouse case said very clear, the, the primary reason of the whole thing was to extend citizenship to the Negro. It had nothing to do with immigration. Nothing to do with it. And to the extent that even if the intent was that way but the language maybe adds something, it would add some degree of LPR that Congress could define. And everyone defined back then – everyone unanimously subject to jurisdiction was the complete su- jurisdiction owing no allegiance to anything else. That you're an immigrant, but you're an immigrant with the same degree of allegiance as a United States citizen. Then your kid is an automatic citizen. Exactly how to define that. That's like a lot of things that that the Constitution set forth that it was given over to Congress, which is A, plenary power over um, naturalization, and B, Section 5 of Amendments 13, 14, 15, as well as some of the later ones, always had a section at the end granting Congress the right to define the parameters, regulate, and force the provisions of the amendments. Not the courts. Congress. So the notion that Congress couldn't do that is BS. Now you could appreciate how insidious Justice Gray's opinion there was clearly something political coming in there. When he comes in in Wang Kim Ark, so that was the case where the Chinese, you know, they weren't allowed in, and they passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. So some people went back home, and then they came back. And meanwhile, they had, they had landing papers. They had a green card. But they're like, no, you can't land because um, since you left, we retroactively expelled you. And as harsh as that sounds – just legally, you have the right to do that. You have the right to exclude anyone, but even those you let in, you have the right to kick them out if you no longer want them. Congress could say, we're done with you. Getting back to Governor Morris, under we have the right to determine what conditions, and that's the condition, that there's a probationary period. And Justice Gray said this in his earlier cases, and that's why it's so hard to say that, oh, but if you have a kid, then that kid's a citizen. But then where's our sovereignty? If this is the probationary period, you're forcing us upon – meaning it just makes no sense. But nonetheless, he came in and said that, no, we're adopting just solely. He spoke copious, copious pages he wrote about – um. The feudal system, English common law, everything was English common law. Stuff that was rejected for the last hundred years, it was foreign to everything the 14th Amendment was doing. It was antithetical to it. The irony is two years – the very same year of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, they passed the Expatriate Act where they – repudiated the feudal system where they formally codified what we always knew was true that an American could renounce because it's consensual. It's allegiance. You could renounce and, and expatriate and you know, you're know you not subject to treason and other laws if you move away and you renounce your citizenship. And I'll get to that at another point hopefully, but that debate sheds a lot of light on that they could not have been adopting just solely. 
But anyway, he goes on and on. He even quotes Wilkins and never references the fact that he was the author of that opinion. Very insidious. Chief Justice Fuller called him out for it. And just goes on and on with garbage. On and on and on and on. He says, and, and, and again, now you could appreciate how foreign this is. The real object of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution in qualifying the words all persons born in the United States by the addition and, 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 and subject to the jurisdiction thereof would appear to have been to exclude by the fewest and fittest words just the two classes of cases, children born of enemies in hostile occupation and children of diplomatic representatives of a foreign state, both of which, as has already been shown, by the law of England and by our own law from the time of the first settlement of the English colonies has been recognized exceptions to the fundamental rule of citizenship by birth of the country. So A, the primary thing was to just adopt just solely English common law. Could you imagine, like, you know, at the beginning of our society, we're still setting things up. We drew a lot upon English common law. 110 years later, and that's why you look at Justice Fuller's thing. It's not like, you know, usually when you have a divided court, you you know where the other guy is coming from. You expect, like, okay, this is his shtick. This is what he believes. Fuller was shocked. You could tell, like, what the hell? Like, where did this come from? You start talking about Calvin's case and Kook, Sir Edward Kook, and all the he everything, his entire thing. It's like the, these these thumbsuckers are like Daniel, shut up. Don't give us the congressional debate on the 14th Amendment. One Kim Ark did not mention a single line from that debate. It actually said it's inadmissible. Very self-fulfilling because he knows it tells the truth, like he himself said in Wilkins 12 years earlier in Slaughterhouse. But his entire piece is quoting – I mean it's like – it's dizifying. It's – it's uh, if you want to understand English common law, I mean that is he, – he's a better expositor of English common law than the English war. Every English case in the 1600s he had in there. It's pathetic. The opinion sucked. It was an imprecation to our heritage. It was feudalism. It was insane. We weren't adopting that system. It was nuts, beyond belief, beyond belief, and it truly is unbelievable what this guy said. And that's it, folks. That's where we are. That's where we are as a nation now. This one insidious guy. This is how judicial supremacism works, and this is how our people, the conservative legal scholars, believe in it. Heads they win, tails they win. They just have to make it, make it up one time. It could, it could literally undermine previous precedent, the plain language and intent, the way everyone understood jurisdiction to mean at the time, and our entire founding, but it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter because one judge said it. I mean, it, it is truly, truly unreal. Truly unreal what this guy did. I mean, folks, could you imagine this birth tourism? Just the, the you know, illegal immigrants are like, oh, okay, they're a protected class. Well, let's just talk about birth tourism. These are wealthy Russians or Chinese or other people coming in taking advantage of us dropping a baby on a tourist visa. 
after you read all these quotes of owing full allegiance, not citizens or subjects of another nation, and our entire complete jurisdiction like a citizen, how in the world could you apply it to that? And indeed, obviously, even Justice Gray didn't. But again, like I said, as a matter of policy, we're okay with this. Just don't stick it into the Constitution. But nonetheless, and we're running out of time, there's so much more to say. There's so you got to read Google Wong Kim Ark, Cornell, or Justia, one of the websites that have all the court cases, the old court cases, and pull up the PDF or scroll down to the dissent from Fuller. Read it. And tell me who has the better argument. That's what I can't I can't relate to. It's like our conservatives now like, oh, Plyler Vido. Now I know I said this last time and I have two articles on this, but I just want to just cap this off by saying even if we start with the terrible Dred Scott style decision of Wong Kim Ark of Justice Gray, he himself was very clear you can never apply it to people who initially came here without consent. It would only apply to all legal permanent residents. That is a certainty beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond any doubt. He used the word domicile 12 times or some form of it like 22 or so times. Domiciled, you have to be a permanent resident domiciled that was very clear very clear would exclude illegals and birth tourism there is no doubt about that even in his terrible system that i spent 80 minutes here telling you how terrible it is that's how it is see the one thing that there's one line that they fail to quote from this opinion they fail to quote from it, and it's really jarring. So when he says it includes resident aliens, there's one qualifier that he says, and that is very clear. And it is disgusting that people overlook that. Or maybe they just never bothered to read it. Never bothered to read it. And I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, when he said that anyone whose parents, um, you know, are are domiciled here, yada yada, their kids are citizens. So quote, so long as they are permitted by the United States to reside here. Done. Because at the end of the day, the problem was, in the case of Wong Kim Ark, even though they banned the Chinese now, at the time that Wong was born, his parents had the right to reside there. They brought them in from the treaty with uh, the emperor. They were brought in. Afterwards, they regretted it, and they banned them, which, it, which Justice Gray said is totally fine. But his point was, look, if at the time you consensually let them in, they had the right to be here, and they're you know legally – they're permanently here. This is their residence. They plan to live here. Then, um, you know, done. Again, that was very radical because at the end of the day, the parents could not become citizens of no fault of their own is because we barred it from them, which we had the right to do. So our point was, so therefore, you can never be a citizen, so your type of immigration can't be that jurisdiction and allegiance. And I think they were right about that. 
from a legal standpoint, that Congress could regulate that. But fine, you know, Ju- Justice Gray did his thing. He says it straight out. He says resident permanent. He says domicile t- in some form over 20 times. And like I said, in six years before he explained to us what domiciled does not mean. This is when he's explaining how the Chinese Exclusion Acts, and he says, this, this is the most, see, these same idiots, every one of them, every one of them, you know who you are, these thumb-sucking conservative libertarian schmucks, who aren't conservative or libertarian for that matter, they, they cherry-pick, hey, you want to rule our immigration and sovereignty by Justice Gray? 99% of the philosophy will be like me, not like you. And even on that 1%, I disagree strongly with the philosophy, but not the outcome. He's very clear it doesn't apply to illegals. He said, quote, and, and by the way, this is the body of law that is cited in all the controlling cases from the 50s, like Shaughnessy, that Scalia and everyone normal has said is still controlling law, uninterrupted stream of law, it is not within the province of the judiciary to order that foreigners who have never never been naturalized, nor acquired any domicile or residence within the United States, nor even been admitted to the United States pursuant to law, shall be permitted to enter in opposition to the constitutional and lawful measures of the legislative and executive branches of the national government. So, right there, you can glean three principles from there. And you really have to see it inside. I'm going to link to my piece where it has in there. But And they're all very important to all of sovereignty, not just the birthright case, but unquestionably show that it can be illegal. Number one, you see that the political branches unquestionably can exclude anyone for any reason, even unfortunately for discriminatory reasons. Number two, the courts have no jurisdiction over the issue of sovereignty. And number three, someone who is not admitted lawfully cannot be considered domiciled in the country. Because notice he references three levels going down. He references domiciled legal permanent residents who aren't naturalized. Even those people could be deported, as he says. Then he refers to a temporary visitor who is not domiciled. Meaning, so there's three levels. Even level two is not domiciled. And then he finally refers to someone who is not here lawfully, who is certainly not domiciled. He's two levels away from being domiciled. You'll never hear this anywhere else. It is beyond the shadow of a doubt. If anyone says the courts haven't addressed this yet, yes, they have. And then, of course, just a couple years later, in um, in uh, Jutoy, 1903, the court said very clear that anyone here not, you know, pursuant to law, is as if they never reached our jurisdiction. Done. Open and shut. To the extent you want to say the court is clear on birthright citizenship, that same court and same author, who, by the way, despite undoing our entire heritage, said very emphatically that illegals are not domiciled. They are not, they certainly cannot have even his watered down allegiance from Wilkins, cannot unilaterally assert jurisdiction, and nobody could ever, ever say that. You know, 
just to make this point a little stronger, allegiance and protection, right? Justice Gray in Won Kim Ark said that the children of, quote, resident aliens who are under, quote, the allegiance and under the protection of the country, they are citizens, right? Allegiance and protection. Those are the words he uses. What does allegiance and protection mean? Well, Justice Gray would know because in the very famous case, Minor v. Happerset, that was a very big case about citizenship. It was ultimately women trying to vote that, hey, we're citizens, so should we be able to vote? And the court said, you can't vote. This is 1874. No, the 14th Amendment doesn't do that for you. And obviously, that's what eventually the 19th Amendment came to overturn, Minor v. Happerset. But the uh, the court did say, nonetheless, that even though they're not, the women are not voting, they are citizens. You know, that citizenship doesn't necessarily get voting, and because women were part of the social compact. And he explains what that means. And this, there's actually a lot, if you read in, in Minor v. Happer said, again, it's very clear that, that certainly anchor baby jurisprudence is false, but even the regular birthright um, for for all, mandatory for all legal immigrants isn't true. Um, Justice Gray would be familiar with the definition of allegiance and protection defined in, in Happerset because he actually cited the case in Wong Kim Ark. Here's what the court said. And now we're coming full circle to close the show on the social compact. Quote, each one of the persons associated becomes a member of the nation formed by the association. He owes it allegiance and is entitled to its protection. Allegiance and protection are in this connection reciprocal obligations. The one is a compensation for the other, allegiance for protection, and protection for allegiance. End quote. Yet we are now being told that our heritage, our history, and wealth of case law on sovereignty mean nothing, all because of a mindless activist and non-binding footnote from Justice Brennan in Plyler v. Doe a hundred years later, which in itself is an illegitimate case granting K-12 through education to illegals in itself, overturning a hundred years of precedent, including Justice Gray, including Wong Kim Ark and Nishimura, incomprehensibly including illegal aliens in the judgment of Wong Kim Ark. Think about it. How the hell could you have allegiance if you're not here and you're considered not here and you have no right to be here? Because allegiance is associated, becomes a member of the nation formed by the association. You didn't become a member. You can't. How could you be under its protection if that very government protecting you has the full right, as Justice Gray said, to detain, deport, track you down, and throw you out at any moment? Even retroactively, even the harshest way. As, as that very justice said, if conservative legal scholars acquiesce this double game of judicial black magic, they deserve to live under the judicial supremacy and all its vices. People are accusing us and the president of trying to repeal the 14th Amendment, but it is in fact they who are not only repealing our Constitution, but our Declaration of Independence, 
which gives the citizens of this society the right to government by the consent of the government. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.